Episode 24. The bird's complicated, shrill symphony is interrupted by the deafening, shrieking garbage trucks. Open window season. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxent General. I am your host, Jess. This week, we celebrate Gatsby's season with a double drink recipe and a do-ahead vegetable dish. But first, we would like to thank our classy Patreon subscribers. These sparkly people help us keep the disco ball turning here at the Patuxent General. If you would like to be one of them, check out our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Every dollar counts, so thank you. Now, our drinks today are both lemonade, alcoholic and non, but this is the most innovative recipe I have come across, so I hope you dig it. Now, our dish today is vegetarian. You could easily do a vegan or meat version, however you fly. This recipe was a favorite of my grandmother and my aunt. They made this for every family cookout during the summer. It is always a crowd pleaser, the stuffed zucchini. My dad and grandparents had a large garden in my grandparents' backyard. It took up most of the yard and fed us all, all season. But zucchini and summer squash were huge producers. Often we would find giant versions of the vegetables hidden under giant leaves or straw. So all season long, we always had one or two ready to cook off. I have continued the tradition in my own garden. Now I'm talking about those monster-sized ones that everybody says the skin's too tough to eat. They hold up real well after blanched and then baked. This is best served warm, but I've eaten it cold with a salad. So tasty. In the winter, I've made it in a casserole dish instead of stuffed in its shell for a taste of summer. For this recipe, you will need one giant zucchini, two small summer squash, cubed, one small onion, cubed, six tablespoons of butter, one bag of stuffing mix of your choice, or five cups of fresh breadcrumbs, two ribs of celery, cubed, paprika for the top, a large pot with ten cups of water, one half sheet pan or large baking dish, seasonings, if you use breadcrumbs, would be one and one half teaspoon black pepper, one teaspoon salt, one teaspoon Italian seasoning, one teaspoon granulated garlic, three eggs, one cup grated Romano or Parmesan cheese, two tablespoons oil of your choice. Mine is grapeseed. First, gently wash whole zucchini and then bring your large pot of water to a boil. Put the zucchini in and boil for five minutes, then remove it and let cool. Retain the liquid. Cut up your summer squash into cubes and then the zucchini lengthwise and with a spoon scrape out the flesh while leaving about a quarter of an inch all along the edges for stability. Cut the flesh into pieces the size of the summer squash cubes. Then take two cups of the zucchini liquid in a smaller pot. Add the summer squash and zucchini. Simmer for about five minutes. Then strain and put into a large mixing bowl for the stuffing. Take a little oil and rub it all over the zucchini jacket. Put them on a sheet pan or bake dish ready to fill. Put the onion, celery, and butter on low heat to soften it until the celery brightens, never browning the butter. Add the eggs, seasonings, if you are doing your own breadcrumbs, otherwise stuffing is flavored and heavily salted, so look out. Onions, celery, grated cheese, and stuffing into the bowl. Give it a toss, then start adding liquid bit by bit until it wants to stick together. Pack into the zucchini shells and sprinkle paprika on top. Bake in a preheated 350 degree oven for one hour. 
Serve hot in a casserole or cold and sliced on a bed of greens. So delicious and comforting. Enjoy. We have a lot to talk about lemonade. It has been around in one form or another since humans had citrus all over the world. The oldest versions have orange as well as lemon and sweetened with date syrup. Like just about everyone, I grew up loving lemonade. I've made my own since I was 10. It was my thing. But this trick today blew my mind. So simple, but so multidimensional. I'm nearly speechless. Well, almost. For this recipe, you will need one pitcher, one glass bowl, one cup sugar, six lemons, a good peeler, six quarts of water. I tried this recipe yesterday and took pictures, which will go up on our Patreon page with this episode. First, we will peel the lemons, five of them. I found that with my ordinary peeler, I had no trouble making three quarter inch thick finger length slices of peel with no real discernible pith. Put those in a bowl and then cover them with a cup of sugar. I used a raw sugar, so I got a little color in my end result. Then cover them with plastic and let sit at room temperature for at least two hours, but overnight is best. The sugar will melt into a syrup. When that happens, pour one quart of boiling water over the peels and let sit until cool. When it is, strain it into the pitcher. Then add the juice from five lemons and one quart of cold water. Stir well and chill. Serve over ice with a slice of lemon and perhaps a cherry or two. Or how about a sprig of mint? This is so refreshing. I'll always do it this way from now on. Now, if you wanted to gild the lily, as it were, you could fill a shaker with ice, put two ounces of your favorite vodka and four ounces of your lemonade, shake and pour into a chilled martini glass, and garnish with a lemon slice and a cherry. This is a yellow jacket my way. Hit me up with your way. Our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Can you dig it? I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 4, Part 1. In the week following that memorable Good Friday, Charles Ward was seen more often than usual and was continually carrying books between his library and the attic laboratory. His actions were quiet and rational, but he had a furtive, haunted look which his mother did not like and developed an incredibly ravenous appetite as gauged by his demands upon the cook. Dr. Willette had been told of those Friday noises and happenings, and on the following Tuesday had a long conversation with the youth in the library, where the picture stared no more. The interview was, as always, inconclusive. But Willette is still ready to swear that the youth was sane, and himself at the time. He held out promises of early revelation and spoke of the need of securing a laboratory elsewhere. At the loss of the portrait, he grieved singularly little considering his first enthusiasm over it, but seemed to find something of positive humor in its sudden crumbling. 
About the second week, Charles began to be absent from the house for long periods, and one day, when good Hannah had come to help with the spring cleaning, she mentioned his frequent visits to the old house on Olney Court, where he would come with a large valise and perform curious delvings in the cellar. He was always very liberal to her and to old Asa, but seemed more worried than he used to be, which grieved her very much, since she watched him grow up from birth. Another report of his doings came from Patuxet, where some friends of the family saw him at a distance a surprising number of times. He seemed to haunt the resort and canoe house of Rhodes on the Patuxet, and subsequent inquiries by Dr. Willette at the place brought out the fact that his purpose was always to secure access to the rather hedged-in riverbank, along which he would walk toward the north, usually not reappearing for a very long while. Late in May came a momentary revival of ritualistic sounds in the attic laboratory, which brought a stern reproof from Mr. Ward and a somewhat distracted promise of amendment from Charles. It occurred one morning and seemed to form the resumption of the imaginary conversation noted on that turbulent Good Friday. The youth was arguing or remonstrating hotly with himself, for there suddenly burst forth a perfectly distinguishable series of clashing shouts in differentiated tones like alternate demands and denials, which caused Mrs. Ward to run upstairs and listen at the door. She could hear no more than a fragment whose only plain words were, must have it read for three months. And upon her knocking, all sounds ceased at once. When Charles was later questioned by his father, he said that there were certain conflicts of spheres in consciousness which only great skill could avoid, but which he would try to transfer to other realms. And Mr. Ward was on the point of investigating when it suddenly quieted down. That midnight, after the family had retired, the butler was night-locking the front door when, according to his statement, Charles appeared somewhat blunderingly and uncertainly at the foot of the stairs with a large suitcase and made signs that he wished egress. The youth spoke no word, but the worthy Yorkshireman caught one sight of his fevered eyes and trembled causelessly. He opened the door and young Ward went out, but in the morning he presented his resignation to Mrs. Ward. There was, he said, something unholy in that glance Charles. Charles had fixed on him. It was no way for a young gentleman to look at an honest person, and he could not possibly stay another night. Mrs. Ward allowed the man to depart, but she did not value his statement highly. To fancy Charles in a savage state that night was quite ridiculous, for as long as she had remained awake, she had heard faint sounds from the laboratory above, sounds as if sobbing and pacing, and a sighing which told only of despair's profoundest depths. Mrs. Ward had grown used to listening for sounds in the night, for the mystery of her son was fast driving all else from her mind. The next evening, much as another evening nearly three months before, Charles Ward seized the newspaper very early and accidentally lost the main section. This matter was not recalled till later, when Dr. Willette began checking up loose ends and searching out missing links here and there. In the journal office, he found the section which Charles had lost and marked two items as possible significance. They were as follows. Cemetery Delving. It was this morning discovered by Robert Hart, a night watchman at the North Burial Ground, that ghouls were again at work in the ancient portion of the cemetery. The grave of Ezra Whedon, who was born in 1740 and died in 1824, according to his uprooted and savagely splintered slate headstone, 
was found excavated and rifled, the work being evidently done with a spade stolen from the adjacent tool shed. Whatever the contents may have been after more than a century burial, all was gone except for a few slivers of decayed wood. There were no wheel tracks, but the police have measured a single set of footprints which they found in the vicinity and which could indicate the boots of a man of refinement. Hart is inclined to link this incident with the digging discovered last March when a party and a motor truck were frightened away after making a deep excavation. Sergeant Riley of the second station discounts that theory and points to vital differences in the two cases. In March, the digging had been in a spot where no grave was known, but this time a well-marked and cared-for grave had been rifled with every evidence of deliberate purpose and with a conscious malignity expressed in the splintering of the slab which had been intact up to the day before. Members of the Whedon family, notified of the happening, expressed their astonishment and regret and were wholly unable to think of any enemy that would care to violate the grave of their ancestor. Hazard Whedon of 598 Angel Street recalls a family legend according to which Ezra Whedon was involved in some very peculiar circumstances, not dishonorable to himself shortly before the revolution, but of any modern feud or mystery, he is frankly ignorant. Inspector Cunningham has been assigned to the case, hopes to uncover some valuable clues in the near future. Noisy dogs in Patuxet. Residents of Patuxet were aroused at 3 a.m. today by a phenomenon baying of dogs which seemed to center on the river just north of Rhodes on the Patuxet. The volume and quality of the howling was unusually odd, according to most who heard it, and Fred Limden, night watchman at Rhodes, declared it was mixed with something very like the shrieks of a man in mortal terror and agony. A sharp and very brief thunderstorm, which seemed to strike somewhere near the bank of the river, put an end to the disturbance. Strange and unpleasant odors, probably from the oil tanks along the bay, were popularly linked with the incident and may have had their share in exciting the dogs. The aspect of Charles now became very haggard and haunted, and all agreed in retrospect that he may have wished at this period to make some statement or confession from which sheer terror withheld him. The morbid listening of his mother in the night brought out the fact that he made frequent sallies abroad under cover of darkness, and most of the more academic alienists unite at present in charging him with the revolting cases of vampirism which the press so sensationally reported about this time, but which have not yet definitely traced to any known perpetrator. These cases, too recent and celebrated to need detailed mention, involved victims of every age and type and seemed to cluster around two distinct localities. The residential hill and the North End, near the Ward home, and the suburban districts across the Cranston Line near Patuxet. Both late wayfarers and sleepers with open windows were attacked, and those who lived to tell the tale unanimously spoke of a lean, lithe, leaping monster with burning eyes, which fastened its teeth in the throat or upper arm and feasted ravenously. Dr. Willette, who refuses to date the madness of Charles Ward as far back as even this, is cautious in attempting to explain these horrors. He has, he declares, certain theories of his own, and limits his positive statements to a peculiar kind of negation. I will not, he says, state who or what I believe perpetrated those attacks and murders, but I will declare that Charles Ward was innocent of them. I have reason to be sure he was ignorant of the taste of blood, and indeed he continued anemic decline and increasing pallor 
proved better than any verbal argument. Ward meddled with terrible things, but he paid for it, and he was never a monster or a villain. As for now, I don't like to think. A change came, and I'm content to believe that the old Charles Ward died with it. His soul did, anyhow, for that mad flesh that vanished from Waits Hospital had another. Willette speaks with authority, for he was often at the Ward home attending Mrs. Ward, whose nerves had begun to snap under the strain. Her nocturnal listening had bred some morbid hallucinations, which he had confided to the doctor with hesitancy, and which he ridiculed in talking to her, although they made him ponder deeply when alone. These delusions always concerned the faint sounds that she fancied she heard in the attic laboratory and bedroom, and emphasized the occurrence of muffled sighs and sobbings at the most impossible times. Early in July, Willette ordered Mrs. Ward to Atlantic City for an indefinite recuperative sojourn, and cautioned both Mr. Ward and the haggard and elusive Charles to write her only cheering letters. It is probably to this enforced and reluctant escape that she owes her life and continued sanity. Once again, we would like to thank you all for joining us here at the PG. Please reach out with comments, questions, bookings, or dare I say ghost stories? Our email, once again, is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. Operators are standing by. Until then, I'll meet you back here next time at the Patuxet General. A Something for Posterity production. Pre-recorded in Patuxet. <laughs>